Well, good morning. And we're glad that you're here. We're still in the middle of a series called Lost in Love, and this has definitely been kind of a love and relationships week for me. Uh, we just finished a two-day marriage conference uh, yesterday about noon 30, and uh, so all week I've been speaking on love and relationships, and I've been having a blast as a matter of fact, and uh, this uh, talk is, is one that I, I feel very attached to because I feel like the material that I'm going to be talking to you about this morning is something that I, I deal with on a regular basis in my coaching ministry to couples, and it may be the number one way that people end up lost in their love relationships. I think partially because this is one of the few things that we talk about in terms of being lost in love that we have very, very little control over. I mean, we have a lot of control over our choices, so we can make some determinations about where those choices take us, the destinations that we experience in life. And there's other things that we have a lot of choices about, but maybe you've experienced this in your life. A lot of times, it just feels like you have very little control over how the people that you love hurt you. It's almost like you just never know when someone's going to either accidentally or on purpose do something that hurts. And how many of us can relate to the fact that it seems like the closer you are to someone, the, the easier it is for them to hurt you. And what I mean by that is because when people get close to you, you become vulnerable with them. That's part of being close. After all, relationships involve risk. If there isn't any risk, then there isn't any relationship. So the, the closer you get to someone, the more vulnerable you get with them. That's just naturally part of the process. But because you're more vulnerable with them, it's easier for them to do something that can actually hurt you. But let me ask you this question. What do you do when someone hurts you on purpose? What do you do when someone actually wounds you on purpose? How do you deal with that? How do you recover from it? And then more importantly, and this is what we're going to be talking about this morning, how do you interface with somebody that's done that to you? Because I talk to a lot of people on a regular basis where they're, they're in a love relationship with someone who is, is, is pur purposefully, intentionally, or at least let's say they did something that hurt that person that they should have, they should have been able to realize it was going to hurt them and they should have not done it. How do you deal with that person when they come back and they knock on your doorstep and they say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I really want us to be okay again, I want us to be in a trust relationship again, please, you know, let's just move past that. How do you deal with that? Because, you know, we talked in the first week about it's, it's, it's not fair, it's love, right? But maybe you've been in a situation where you've been wounded by someone, and when they show back up on your doorstep and they say, hey, I just want you to trust me again, I want us to be in an okay relationship again, maybe there's a, a, red, a, you know, a red flag that's going off in your mind that says, wait a minute, something doesn't seem right about this, and that red flag should be there. It's there for a reason. So we're going to talk this morning, and I'm going to be just really dead level frank with you about how you approach someone who's hurt you when they show back up on your doorstep. And in order to do that, I need to take you back to a story in the Old Testament. And, and what my challenge is going to be this morning is going to be to, to, to cover a very, very long involved story in a short period of time so that we can get uh, to a place where I can talk with you about what the Bible teaches us about this. We're going to be talking about the story of a man named Joseph. Now, uh, Joseph's story is in the book of Genesis, and, and, and his story must have been pretty important because there's a lot of ink devoted to his life. We have 13 chapters devoted just to Joseph's life. And what we learn when we, when we first see Joseph appearing on the scene is that he's part of a really messed up family, right? I guess all of us are part of a messed up family to some extent, right? But he was part of a really messed up family, right? His, his dad was married to two women, 
which is never a good idea, right? This is something, this is something you see in the Old Testament a lot. But to be really honest with you, you know, some people, they'll come up to me and say, Pastor, you know, read the Old Testament. I see all these guys married to multiple wives. What's up with that? Well, it was never God's plan. And if you read any, I challenge you, read any story that you see in the Old Testament of a man married to multiple wives and show me how that it wasn't a disaster. Every single, every single story that I see in the Old Testament of that, it always ends up going poorly. And in this case, it was exceptionally so. You've got Jacob is married to two women. One is Rachel and one is Leah. Rachel is a woman for whom he is head over heels. I mean, he would do anything for her. He just thinks she hangs the moon, and he loves her. And then he's married to another woman that he was tricked into marrying, and he doesn't like her at all. Right? So that's, that's a pretty messed up thing in the first place. But to add to the drama, to add to the problems in the family, it turns out that Leah, the one that he doesn't like very much, has, can have children, and she has several. And then you have Rachel, who has a very hard time having children. And so, you know, through, through Leah and a couple other women who are in the picture, Joseph's dad has, you know, 10 sons. And then eventually through Rachel, the, 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 the pride of his life, the love of his life, she has two sons. One is Joseph. He's the guy we're going to be talking about all morning. And the other one is Benjamin. And, and when Rachel was uh, giving birth to Benjamin, she passed away in childbirth. So now think about this. Jacob is now married to a woman that he doesn't like very much. The love of his life is now passed away. And the only thing that he has left of his, of his beloved wife are these two kids, Joseph and Benjamin. So he spoils them rotten. He gives them anything they ask for. He wants, to, he wants to just show them how much he loves them. I mean, you've read about Joseph and his coat of many colors. I mean, just to have a garment that was colored, that had some pigment to it, was huge because it involved using expensive dye, and they didn't have a lot of that. So to have a, a garment that wasn't just the color of the fibers of whatever the material the garment was made of, that was huge. And to, for, for Joseph's dad to get him a garment that had a, a bunch of different dyed colors on it, that was over the top. That was like something that Armani would have to special order. You were really going to a lot of trouble to get someone something like that. So it was, it was like this huge, if, 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 you now think about this. I want you to put yourself for a second in the brother's position, all right? You're one of 10 brothers. Your dad does not like you very much. Your dad does not like your mom very much. He doesn't treat your mom like a real wife. He doesn't treat you like a real son. And you watch this guy walking around all day. It's like, it's like with this huge, glaring, you know, bright garment that, that all, all you ever get from that is, my dad doesn't love me and my dad loves this guy. So there was some tension. It was a messed up family. And then on top of that, Joseph began to have dreams. And, and back then, you have to remember, we do not have, at this point, we don't have much uh, revealed scripture. Um, we don't have, uh, God has not revealed himself in his word yet. So God revealed himself to people back then in, in a number of different ways. And one of those was dreams. And so God began to let Joseph have dreams. And Joseph's dreams were about the fact, and this was odd, Joseph's dreams were about the fact that his family was eventually going to bow down to him, right? He had this one dream where, you know, they were all threshing wheat and his brother's wheat stalks all bowed down and a circle around his wheat stalk. And then he had a dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down uh, to, to him. And that was a, a, another picture of his family bowing down to him. So he went and he shared this with his brothers, right? Which was not a very popular message for them. They were just about done with this guy, right? They said, I've just about had it. You know how it is when you tell one of your siblings, come here, right? We're going to have a little talk, right? We'll, we'll go have a little discussion. And that was kind of, it, it was very, very, there was a lot of tension. And, uh, and then on top of this, this is, this is kind of like the last straw. Jo, you know, Joseph's brothers, from what we can tell about them, they weren't really the sharpest knives in the drawer. A couple of them were a few fries short of a happy meal. And um, 
So a lot of times what would happen is they would get into trouble. So, so, so Joseph's dad would send Joseph out to go check on his brothers, which made Joseph even more popular, right? He was that sibling that was the goody two-shoes. I don't know if you had one of these in your family, but was there ever a sibling that was the goody two-shoes that your parents always sent to check on you or to watch you or to make sure that you didn't get into any trouble, right? That's who Joseph was. He sends Joseph out to go find his brothers, and they see Joseph coming, and they say, all right, enough with this. We're just going to kill this guy. Now, remember, these are his brothers saying they're going to kill him. Now, I have two brothers. One of them uh, is just a little less than two years younger than me. So if you have siblings that are close to you in age, you know that what that means is that he and I did this for all the years that we were growing up together, right? We were so close in age that we just really, you know, so we almost killed each other several times, right? But it was never premeditated, right? But I don't think it was. But, but these guys were really planning on killing their brother. And I don't have time to go through all the specifics of how it happened, but they basically ended up deciding that killing him was a bad idea. What they would do is sell him as a slave because there was an Egyptian slave train coming around. So what they decided to do was sell him as a slave, get, get a little money out of the deal. Then they took his coat of many colors, which was not their favorite garment in the world anyhow, and, and they tore it up, dipped it in animal blood, took it back to Joseph's dad and said, I guess, you know, I guess something happened to him. What do you think happened? And Jacob was sure that some wild animal had just eaten his son. Right? So it's all done with, right? I mean, they've, they've gotten rid of the brother they don't like, and Joseph is now being led off in chains to Egypt. You want to talk about being wounded by someone that you love. I think Joseph was totally blindsided by that. Got to be honest with you. I truly, in my heart, I believe that he was totally, just absolutely shocked. I cannot imagine what it would have liked to have been to have been the favored son, that, that your dad loved you. You, you were just the, you, you were just like, always in his good graces, always in his favor, and now all of a sudden people are talking to you in a gruff tone, in a mean tone, they're acting like they own you because they pretty much do, and you're being led off to some place that has a culture that you've never been around and a language that you've never spoken. I mean, it had to have just been a huge trauma to his system. And then he gets to Egypt, and he gets put in the house of a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar was a military man who's very well off, and he ended up in his house. Now, one thing you're going to learn about Joseph, and this is a side point, right? It has nothing to do with the message, but I'm going to, you know, maybe this will be helpful for you. Joseph was talented at managing. Now, you, every single one of you in this room, God has given you some sort of talent. I don't know what it is, but there's something that God has gifted you with that you're better at than the average person. And Joseph was gifted at management. And what we're going to see throughout this entire story is that no matter where you put Joseph, he, was, he never allowed himself to be defined by where he was. He always went right to his gift package. He always went right to what God had gifted him with, and he always got right to work. So he ends up in Potiphar's house, and he starts managing. He starts just, and if, even though he started off with small tasks, he handled those well until his boss basically said, you know what, you're so good at managing, I'm just going to put you in charge of my whole house. And that's what he did. Potiphar said, Joseph, you handle everything, uh, and, and I know with you in charge, I won't have to worry about anything. But there was a problem. Satan still had a big red target painted on Joseph. And Potiphar had a wife who was apparently not much interested in Potiphar anymore because she took a real shine to Joseph. The Bible says Joseph was an attractive man. The Bible tells us that Potiphar's wife thought he was attractive as well. And so she kept trying to lure him into a situation where he would sleep with her. And she kept, and the Bible says over and over she made advances towards him. And over and over he said, no, I can't do that. Even to a certain point, he tried to explain it to her. He said, look, here's the deal. I have access to everything in this house. Potiphar has not said that there's anything in this house that I can't have. The only thing that I can't have access to in this house is you, and I'm not going to do that. But she eventually wouldn't take no for an answer. She grabbed his garment one day, 
and thought that by grabbing him, she could force him to stick around. And the Bible says that he ran away, which, folks, let me tell you what, that is not a bad thing to pay attention to. The Bible says that when she grabbed him, he ran away and his garment was left in her hands. She was so angry and so upset with him that she yelled out to all the rest of the servants in the house and accused him of raping her and showed them his garment that she had in her hand. Potiphar was furious. He threw Joseph in the, in the, in the king's prison, basically death row. I mean, he had done all this good work. He had, he had come back from taking this huge setback in his, in, in his life and had, had actually achieved some level of success, and now he hits a major snag and a major setback, and he ends up in prison. And if you're like me, and I, I, don't, I don't know if, if, if you try to put yourself in someone's position when you're reading scriptures, but I do. I try to put myself in someone's position. I think, you know, if, I, if I'm Joseph at this point, I just give up, and I basically decide, you know what, I'm just going to live life as a prisoner. You know, this is, I guess, what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm in prison, so I'm going to be a prisoner. But you know what Joseph was when he got to prison? He, he was a manager. He said, no, God's gifted me in being a manager, so I'm going to start working. I'm going to start doing what God has gifted me at, at doing. And the Bible says that the, 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 the head warden was so impressed with Joseph that he literally put Joseph in charge of the prison. He let Joseph manage the prison. And the, and the, and the head warden said, with you in charge, I won't have to worry about anything. I'm just going to let you handle it, right? Now think about, how, think about how awesome this is. It seems like no matter where Joseph is, he always floats to the top. That's a message for another day, but so he ends up in, in prison, and you know this, there's a lot of details here, but he ends up spending a lot of time in prison. I mean, if you're like me, I'm thinking, God, get him out of there. He doesn't deserve to be there. He hasn't done anything wrong. This isn't fair. Get him out of there as quickly as you can, and yet he spent quite a time in prison. As a matter of fact, he did, some, he did a favor for one of uh, Pharaoh's servants who happened to be in prison. He said, you know, I'm, I can interpret your dream for you. The, your dream is that Pharaoh's going to reinstate you to your job. You're going to get out of prison. When you get out of prison, don't forget me. Tell Pharaoh about me. I shouldn't even be here. I didn't do anything wrong. And when that servant was restored to his job, that servant totally forgot about Joseph for a long time. But eventually... Eventually, Pharaoh had a dream that, that he didn't know what it meant. It was a really disturbing dream, and Pharaoh called his really smart guys in. Hey, guys, what did this dream mean? And they him hawed around and said, we have no clue. You know? and, and so it, then, then, then the servant of Pharaoh that Joseph had met in prison said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know this guy in prison who knows how to interpret dreams. I bet he can interpret your dream for you, right? And so he says, look, I don't care whether he's in prison or where he is. If he can interpret my dream, get him over here. So he went over, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream for him. He said, well, here's what your dream means. You're going to have 14 years of economic shift in your country. Seven years where you have more finances, more crops, um, more resources at your disposal than you've ever had before. And then after that, you're going to go through seven years of hardship where there's going to be no crops, finances are going to be hard to come by, and the country's going to go through a very lean time. So he says, here's what I think you ought to do, Pharaoh. I think you ought to go through the land and figure out who's the smartest guy you have access to, put him in charge, make him a manager, Sound familiar? Make him a manager who can, who can save all the excess of the first seven years so that in the second seven years you'll have food to eat. And Pharaoh stood there for a second and he said, well, what are you doing? Right? And Joseph said, well, mostly I'm just hanging out in prison. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I, I, think, I think you might be the guy for the job. So, so Joseph gets to take his prison jumpsuit off and becomes the prime minister of Egypt. That must have been an interesting day for Potiphar's wife, but that's, I digress. Um, he becomes the prime minister of, of Egypt. And, and here's what the, the Pharaoh says, and see if this sounds familiar. The Pharaoh says, you know what, Joseph, you're so good at this whole management thing, I'm going to put you in charge of the whole nation. Because with you in charge, I won't have to worry about anything. You can just handle it. Isn't this how life goes? Don't we go through seasons 
if, if, let, me, let me just come, I want to give you a comforting thought, because if you're here in this room right now and you're in a season of betrayal, somebody has really let you down, somebody's done something to really hurt you, can I just tell you, there are seasons of life and you will get beyond this. There will be a time when you will get beyond this. And that's what happened to Joseph. He really did go through seasons of life. And because he was online with God's plan, he really got beyond it. And as a matter of fact, he really communicates that to us in Genesis 41 because Joseph had two sons and he named one of his sons Manasseh, which means to forget. And he said, I'm naming him because God has made me forget all the troubles in everyone in my father's family. And then he named his second son Ephraim which means fruitful. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm naming him this because God has made me fruitful even in the land of my grief. So we go through seasons. We go through a season of betrayal, which by the way, you say, well, Jonathan, what do you mean by betrayal? Well, if somebody makes poor choices uh, that they know is going to mess their own life up, but they do it anyway, well, that's unfortunate, right? But if someone makes poor choices that they know is going to mess your life up, that's betrayal, right? If they know that what they're getting ready to do is going to hurt you and they do it anyway, that's betrayal. And sometimes we go through seasons of betrayal. Sometimes people do things and they know it's going to hurt you and they do it anyway. But then we go through a season of waiting, right? That season of waiting for God to show up on the scene and do something, right? And some of you right now are in that season of waiting. You've been betrayed. That's happened to you before. You haven't quite been restored yet. You're still waiting for that period of restoration. So right now, kind of like Joseph sitting in prison, you're waiting for that time of restoration. You're still kind of in the middle. And then we hit that beautiful season of restoration where God shows up on the scene and he begins to work the pieces of the story out so that we experience his full blessing in the middle of what was a really bad circumstance. And we come out of it better than we went into it and we feel that restoration. And then someone shows up on your doorstep. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I won't do it again. I promise. Can we just be friends again? Can you just take me back? Seriously. I promise I won't do it again. What do you do when that happens? You've been through the, you've been through the seasons. You've been through the season of betrayal, then the season of waiting, and the season of restoration. You're moving on. You've kind of forgotten about some things that used to really hurt when you thought about it. And you've kind of, you've kind of you know, gotten to the point where you're recognizing that even though you're not in the situation you pictured yourself in, God is doing cool stuff through you. And now you've got to deal with the old people coming back into the scene. And some of you know how painful it is when you even see their face because sometimes when you've been hurt bad enough, right, just to hear about it, just for somebody to talk about it or for you to see that person's face or for that person to show up and be around you, it rubs on a raw spot in your soul and it takes you back to the trauma that you experienced before. What do you do? When the Bible tells us that Joseph's brothers eventually came back and saw Joseph. They didn't know they saw Joseph, but they came back. Because when those seven years of famine hit, it didn't just hit in Egypt, it hit throughout the whole land, the Bible tells us. So jo Joseph's uh, dad and his brothers, they were having major issues. They didn't have any food to eat. And so Jacob goes and tells his sons, go to Egypt. I heard they have food there and uh, bring it back. So he sends his sons off. He doesn't send Benjamin. Why? Because Benjamin is his son. In fact, over and over in the Bible, he acts as though it's his only son, right? He, he says in Genesis, over and over, he says, Benjamin is all I have left. Man, that has to be a hard message for the other brothers to hear. He acts like Benjamin's, remember I said, he only treats Joseph and Benjamin like real sons. The other 10 are just kind of like room, you know, borders in his house. So he sends those guys off to Egypt, but he keeps Benjamin home. They go to Egypt, and when they get there, they, see, they, they, they get brought to Joseph because Joseph is doling out the food, but they don't recognize Joseph because Joseph's been in Egypt for a while now, and he's dressed like an Egyptian. He's got the whole Egyptian attire going on. He presents himself like an Egyptian, and he speaks the language very fluently. He doesn't, say, he doesn't speak Hebrew anymore. I mean, he knows Hebrew, but he speaks in the language of Egypt. So they get there, and they have no idea that they're talking to Joseph, but Joseph, it hadn't been that long, and Joseph recognizes his brothers like that. 
So here's what I want to talk to you about. Joseph does some really weird things when Joseph's brothers show up. And if you don't understand what he's trying to do, it could not make a whole lot of sense. But I'm going to show you how brilliant. I told you Joseph was a manager. I'm not. I'm not a detail person. I'm not a manager. But Joseph was a manager. And he shows wisdom and brilliance in how he works with his brothers. And I want you to take away from what he did how to handle it when someone shows back up on the scene after they've hurt you. Okay? Here's what happens. His brothers show up. Joseph sees them. He's speaking through an interpreter. And he says, I know why you guys are here. You guys are here because you're spies. You came here to, to look at how weak we are and, and, and to come back. You're going to go back and get however many other people you have back wherever you came from. You're going to come back and try to take over the country, right? And the brothers say, no, 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 no. We're not spies. We swear we're not spies. We're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're 10 of 11 brothers, um, actually 10 of 12 because, you know, one of them is dead. They didn't know the dead one was standing right in front of them, right? Um, but then one of them's, one of them's back home with, with, uh, with dad and, and we didn't come to spy on you. We swear we just came to give food. If you'll just give us food and let us go home, we brought money. We'll pay you. We just want to, we just want to get in and get out like I do at Walmart. We just want to get in and get out. If you let us go home, we, we really will be happy. And, and he said, well, I still think you're spies, but if, if you're, if you're really being honest with me, here's a way you can prove it. What we'll do is we'll take one of your brothers and, and we'll put him in prison, right? So you guys figure out who's the lucky one. And um, then the rest of you guys will go home and bring back this other brother that you say you have. And if you bring back this other brother, then I'll know that you're being honest with me, right? Well, Joseph knows the whole backstory. He knows that the, the brother that's back home is Benjamin. He wants to get Benjamin in Egypt because he has a test that he wants to run. So they go home. And, and what's really interesting is when they get home, they open up their sacks, right, of all the grain that they got in Egypt. They open up their sacks and find their money in the sacks, right? Now, that would be an interesting Walmart trip, right? Do a little bit of shopping, roll back prices. You get home, you open up your sacks, and bam, there's your money, right? That would be awesome. I would love that, right? Um, but, but seriously, they get home, they look at the money's in their sacks, and they go in and they tell their dad, Jacob, about the whole deal. Well, you know, first of all, Simeon's in, in prison, and we're supposed to take Benjamin back. He says, don't come back if you don't bring Benjamin. And then on top of that, we opened our sacks, our money is in our sacks, and Jacob almost has a mild coronary, right? And he says, there is absolutely no way you're ever going back there because there's no way you're taking Benjamin back. And so there's a period of time where that's just about all, all that happens. And then after a little while, they eat through all the food, and Jacob comes back to his sons and says, all right, guys, time to go back to Egypt and get some more food. And Judah, right, now Judah is the guy that decided to sell Joseph into slavery a long time ago, right? But Judah's a funny guy. He comes up to his dad, right, and has this weird kind of funny conversation because he says, uh, Dad, come here, walk with me, talk with me. Do you remember when we came back from uh, Egypt. Do you remember how there was like one less person came back? You remember there was an empty camel. So there was a, there was a you know there was there's now there's been an empty bed every night ever since we came back. There's one less person at the table. We told you that one of our brothers is back there in prison. Then we told you that the guy said we can't come back unless we bring Benjamin with us. Do you remember how we said that we would not go without Benjamin? Just to recap, we won't go back without Benjamin, right? And so there's this long argument between Jacob and, and Judah about whether they'll go or not. Finally, Judah says, "Here's the deal." I'm going to guarantee to you that I will bring him back. On my personal life, I guarantee to you I will bring Benjamin back with me. And then Jacob has one of his passive-aggressive moments. Jacob's kind of a passive-aggressive guy. And he, he goes, oh, the world is against me. He says, okay, fine. You know, either we're all going to stay here and starve, or I send my, my favorite son to Egypt with you and something bad happens to him. Nothing good can happen out of this. Fine, just take him. Right? So they go and they take Benjamin. They get back to Egypt, and when they get back to Egypt, Joseph says, okay, you know, you obviously, uh, you know, you're honestly men of your word. You can, you know, I'm going to invite you to a feast. Joseph actually invites his brothers to a feast, um, 
and there's a lot of details here that I'm skipping over, but can, ima- can you imagine these starving kids who came from a, uh, you know, from a faraway country? They had you know, very little to eat, and then Joseph invites them to a feast in the palace, and then he sends them off. But this is where Joseph does something really weird. Joseph tells his head of staff, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my silver cup, the one that I use when I'm doing all my important prime minister stuff. I want you to take that silver cup, and I want you to put it in the grain sack of that youngest kid. And then when they get a little ways outside of town, I want you to go get them and ask them why they stole from me. So the guys, you know, they get everything loaded up. They get to mile marker one, mile marker two outside of town, and then sirens, you know. They get, they get pulled over, and the guy comes over and says, how on earth, what, what, what would cause you, what would cause you to, to steal from us? We were so nice to you. We fed you. We've, you know, we, we've treated you well, and even though you're foreigners. Why would you do this to us? And they said, you don't understand. We haven't done anything wrong. You know, look through our sacks, and, 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 and if you find anything in our sacks, then we'll go back with you to Egypt. You know, we promise we haven't done anything wrong. They open up the sacks one at a time, don't find anything. They get to Benjamin's sack, and there's the cup. I mean, that had to be just a moment where the air just got let out of the room. <sighs> Because they thought, how could this happen? They end up back in Egypt. They go before Joseph, and Joseph says, I cannot believe you would do this to me. But here's the deal. The youngest kid is the one who stole from me. The youngest kid is the one who, who's going to get punished for it. The rest of you can go home. Now, what is Joseph doing? After, after all, isn't he an honest man? Isn't he a man of integrity? He's the man who wouldn't cheat with his, uh, with, with his boss's wife. Why would he be doing this? Why would he be framing somebody? Do you remember when they betrayed Joseph, when they sold Joseph into slavery, why did they sell him off into slavery? Well, there was a couple reasons. Number one is he was Rachel's child and not their mom's child, so it bought, that bothered them. He was the favored son. That bothered them. And then also because it was just convenient. They could save their hides and they could get rid of the pest. Now, is Benjamin Rachel's child, yes or no? Yes. Right? Is Benjamin probably as much of a pest as Joseph was to them because of what bothered them? Probably right? Now he's giving them a chance to do the same thing again. Do the same thing. Just leave the, leave the young kid, right? Leave him in Egypt, and then you guys go home. He doesn't say this, obviously, but it's almost like he's saying, you could just make up another story. Just go home, make up another story. Just do what you've done before. Now, why is Joseph doing this? Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who kind of puts some pressure on you to not just forgive them, but to trust them again. It's kind of like they've done something really wrong, and they say, look, if you forgive me, the Bible says if you forgive me, then you have to trust me again. After all, forgive and forget, right? That's got to be in the Bible somewhere, I think, right? Not really, but that's fine. But, uh, but seriously, if you forgive me, then you ought to be able to restore me after all. You know, just because, just because of this whole pornography thing that hit the fan, that doesn't mean that you should treat me any different as your husband. After all, if you're going to forgive me, you should restore me. If you're going to forgive me, you should trust me. Things should be the same. I mean, isn't that what God does for us? Things just start over new. I mean, don't, aren't you going to have new mercies for me like God has new mercies for me? Can't we just start over? Can't we act like it never happened? And see, what Joseph is teaching us is that there is a world of difference between forgiveness and restoration. The idea that if someone does something wrong, for you to forgive them means that you restore them to the same privilege immediately that they had before they betrayed you is never in the Bible anywhere. Anywhere. 
Here's the thing. Joseph has got to make a decision. And because he's a manager, he's smart, and we can learn something from what he does. He wants to have a relationship with his brothers. And maybe you've been betrayed, but you still want to have a relationship with that person. I think that's pretty normal. We still have that hard attachment to that person. We still feel that connection. We want to have a relationship with them, but we cannot have the old relationship with that person because it was messed up. If you've been in a marriage relationship and things went south in your marriage, but you still want to be with that person, you know you don't want the same relationship you had before. You want a different relationship. You want a new relationship. Things are going to have to be different if, if you expect any kind of a different outcome. And so what Joseph is trying to find out is Joseph is trying to find out, are my brothers going to try to bring their old attitude to a new place? Are they going to try to bring an old attitude to a new relationship? After all, if he's going to help them, he needs to bring them to Egypt. But if you think about it, they were absolutely demolished inside by the idea that their stalks of wheat would bow down to Joseph's stalks of wheat. That was just a dream. Can you imagine? He's thinking, what's going to happen when they get to Egypt and everybody in this country bows down to me? You know, they, they struggle because I had the favor of my father in my life. They struggle because I was given special privilege. What's going to happen when they get to Egypt and I have the favor of the Pharaoh? What's going to happen when I'm probably one of the most privileged people in this country? Can, can, can I bring them here? Well, the question is not, can, am I able to bring them here? The question is, can they handle being here? That's the question of, of, of restoration is, can this person handle being in a new relationship? Can they handle being back in that place of privilege? And the question is this, the pivotal question is, has the attitude changed? Has the heart changed? Has the part of them on the inside that makes those decisions on what to do and what to think and, and who to respond to and who to obey and, 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 and where to go with their life, that part of them, their heart, has it made a change? Well, the deciding moment comes in this story, in Genesis 44. It comes from a very unexpected source. It comes from Judah. Now, Judah, again, is the guy who came up with the brilliant entrepreneurial idea of selling his brother, right? He's also, by the way, the guy who guaranteed that he would bring Benjamin home. And now he, now, now, now think about this. Now Judah is willing. Judah is the one who said, let's just sell our brother because he's not that important. Now he's willing to get in the face of the prime minister of Egypt and beg for his brother's life. And this is what he says. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. And if he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be, huge word, responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. He cares about what his actions are going to do to his father. That was different. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. That's the moment of turnaround in the story. It's the beautiful moment of turnaround. Joseph's brothers never really became, never became the kind of people that you'd want living on your block, but there was some sort of light switch that flipped inside of Judah's head that said, you know what, I care more about this kid than I care about myself. That was the change. Here's the deal. You know, we're, you know we listen to that story and we think, well, maybe it was just a gesture. Maybe he was just saying that. It didn't work that way. When he got in front of the, 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 the prime minister of Egypt and said, I'll stay instead of this kid, he fully expected that he would probably have to spend the rest of his life in servitude instead of his little brother. Man, that made a huge impact on Joseph. 
Because now Joseph knew, now I can bring them to a new place. Now I can bring them to Egypt. I can take care of them because the attitude has changed. Now I can bring them to a new place because the heart has changed. But let me tell you what, if someone tries to hit you over the head with your Bible and say, I, my attitude hasn't changed, I still want to continue on in the things that I've done, or maybe they say, maybe I'm sorry for the things that I've done, but I don't know if I can change, but you should still trust me again because the Bible says you should trust me, have them show you a verse. Uh, it's not in there. See, forgiveness, forgiveness means to, to let someone free of a debt. You don't owe me anything anymore. And the Bible says it's always right to forgive. When someone does something wrong to you, it's always right to forgive because God has forgiven us. So we let them free of the debt. We say, you don't owe me anymore. But trust is a whole other thing. Trust enables, when I trust somebody, I enable them to do whatever it is that their heart wants to do just on a bigger scale. So it is, if, if you're struggling with this, well, how do I approach this person? The right answer is always to start with forgiveness. Cut them loose. Do not carry that chip on your shoulder. Say, they don't owe me anything anymore, and I don't expect them to pay back for what's happened. But what I do expect is that before I allow their behavior to impact my life again, I'm going to need to see a change of heart before I restore them to a place of favor and trust in my life. I want to answer one other quick question. Before, before, we move, before we end our talk today, and that is, how do you deal with the injustice of this? I mean, you know, I, I even had some people talk to me about this after the first week of Lost in Love because I said, it's not fair, it's love. And if there's a part of you on the inside that pushes back against that, then welcome to the club because there's a part of me on the inside that pushes back against that because we say, God is a just God. So how can God be a just God? And yet, we have these situations in life with people who wrong us, and then that's not fair, but yet we still love them. How is that justice? And a lot of us, we have a very supreme sense of justice. Justice. And so we really want to see fair done in our lives as much as possible. And so when we go to the story in Genesis 45, eventually, and I'm skipping down in the passage a little bit, when, when, when Joseph decides to reveal himself to his brothers, it says, then he broke down and wept, and he wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers, is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless, and I can understand why. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them, and so they came closer. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Now look at this. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. He's not just saying, I'm not angry with you. He's saying, don't be angry with yourself. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. How is that justice? How can Joseph not blame them for what he's done to them? How can he not tell them, do you know what kind of a domino effect you had in my life? Did you know that because of what you did, I ended up, I, I ended up getting accused of rape? Did you know that because of what you did, I ended up ultimately spending time in prison? Do you understand what that did to my life? Do you know what you robbed me of? Do you know what you stole? from me? How is it justice for him not to take him to all those places and to explain what's happened to him? Well, this is what Joseph tells us. He said, God brought me here to Egypt. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, in every relationship, and this is what I want you to get, if this is the only thing you walk away from today. He says, in every relationship, there are three parties. There's me, there's God, and then there's the other guy. And he said, here's the thing. You think that we got something going on just between the two of us. 
You think we got some sort of vendetta, some sort of issue thing. You know, I may be holding a chip on my shoulder. I'm upset with you because of what you did. You know, you're really scared because later on in the passage, uh, Joseph's dad dies, and then the brothers get scared again. Maybe he hasn't, you know, maybe he's just not been hurting us because dad's been alive. Now dad's dead. Now he's really going to come after us. And Joseph says, look, you guys think that this is between us. It's not between us. He's like, between us is God, and so everything that you tried to do to me had to come through God before it could come to me. And so did you hurt me? Yes. Did I go through pain because of your actions? Yes. Was it unpleasant, and would I like to go through it again? It was unpleasant, and no, I would not like to go through it again. But you don't understand that God was in the middle, and God loves me, and God wants to do good things for me, so everything you tried to do to mess with me, God just used those things to put me on the fast track to where I was eventually going to be. So here's the thing. The, 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 the Potiphar's house experience and the Potiphar's wife experience and the prison experience and all those things, through those things, God was positioning Joseph. God knew that where Joseph really needed to be was in his position as prime minister of Egypt. So God just kept moving things around. Even things that were done by people who were really hurting Joseph, he just kept moving things around so that Joseph would be at the right place at the right time to fulfill his full destiny. So maybe you're in this room and you say, well, John, you know, Jonathan, I'm just going through it. Somebody's really hurt me. I'm kind of in one of those Potiphar's house kind of places right now. I'm kind of like where Joseph was in prison. I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm not able to live up to my full potential. I'm not where I want to be. I'm looking at my life and saying, why am I stuck here? Can I just tell you, maybe it's a time to look at your life and say, maybe God is positioning me. Maybe God is moving things around so that I will be at the right place at the right time to discover my full potential. You can't engineer that. Only God can engineer that. Here's the thing. Joseph did not understand his full potential, and Joseph's dad did not understand his full potential. And I guarantee you, his brothers had no clue. At the end of the day, the only person who ever knew what Joseph was fully capable of was God. So it had to be God who engineered Joseph's future, and God can do that through a number of ways. So here's the thing. You don't know your full potential either, and I'm going to wager that if I were to ask you what you were capable of, you would sell yourself short because you probably have no idea what you're capable of. So when you feel like you're in a stall pattern and maybe God is positioning you, maybe it's because God knows that you're capable of something that you don't think you're capable of, and God is positioning you and getting you ready to accept that place when it comes open. What is it about this three-party thing? He said, it's me, it's, it's, it's me, it's God, and it's you guys, and, and God can work things out for good. I mean, in Genesis 45, he says, it was God who sent me ahead of, of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. Are you getting this kind of over and over message that Joseph is saying, I ended up here because God wanted me here. You say, well, 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 well Jonathan, I, the, the only thing I have a hard time with in that is, you know, I feel like you're just letting them off the hook, like nothing should ever have to happen to them, like they're not accountable. But no, Joseph says, look, here's the deal, and this is what we need to get, and I know I'm running out of time, but Joseph's saying, look, you guys are not, account, you, you guys are not accountable to me, but you are accountable. Some of us need to get that so that we can tell people in our life, that's the truth. You're not accountable to me. You don't owe me anything. I forgive you. It's not an issue between us, but you are accountable. In Genesis 50, when his brothers are all worried that he's going to hurt him because his dad is dead, he says, listen, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? I mean, you think about it. He's saying, look, that's not my job. This is so huge, guys. Please get this. He's saying, look, You hurt me, but it's not my job to hold you accountable for that. See, some of us have made that our occupation. Our occupation in life is to hold that person accountable for what they've done to hurt us, and what we need to realize is that's not our job. We can't do it. 
we can't manage that kind of accountability anyway. And I'll tell you this, if you try to manage that kind of accountability, it will turn to bitterness and it will rob you of the best days of your life. What Joseph is saying is, look, you are accountable, but you're accountable to God because you tried to mess with one of his kids. I'm too busy to worry about it. God's got big things for me, and that's what I'm in the middle of doing. Here's here's the victory for you this morning. Joseph said, you don't understand. When God's got your back, there's nothing that can mess with you. God, God, God wanted to do something cool with me, and so you guys don't understand. It's small stuff as far as God's concerned. There's, you, you guys could try your worst. Let, let somebody who's even you know, smarter and more intelligent and has actually a, you know, a few good ideas try to mess with me, and God's not worried about them either. God's not worried about anything that can take me off track. All God's worried about is, am I on his, am I on his wavelength? Are we together? Is God going to show me favor? Am I going to show God obedience? As long as that's cool, I don't got to worry about anything on the outside because the Bible says that nothing from the outside can penetrate that wall. God is going to take me where God is going to take me. And so if you're in this room and you're experiencing that, I really want to encourage you to think that way. Here's the thing. Joseph said it's, it's me and it's God and it's the other guy. And if you're in this room this morning and you're really struggling to let go, you're really struggling to let go of what somebody has done to you, Can I remind you that the God that is in the middle of your relationship is the God that hung on a cross and stretched his arms out to pay for the things that you've done wrong? Here's the thing. We feel injustice in our life every day. You you have had injustice perpetrated against you, and I would never sell that short. But if you want to talk about the worst injustice of all time, it was when Jesus had to hang on a cross to pay for the things that we've done wrong. So we have to keep those three people in mind. When we look past the cross of Jesus Christ to see the person over there who has been unjust to us, who has hurt us, who has let us down, we have to remember what we are looking past and say, you know what, if Jesus can be here in the middle and pay for the things that I've done wrong, I can look at you over there and say, you know what, your injustice is not too much. I can turn you loose. I cannot make you not be accountable, but even if that, you know, even if that were the case, that's between you and God. In the meantime, I turn you loose, and then I will be wise when it's time to determine whether to restore. Would you pray pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the fact that you've given us these examples in your word of how to deal with some of the biggest relationship struggles that we can face. And now in our moment that we have left, I pray that, Father, you would speak to hearts and encourage if anyone is in this room and needs to have a relationship with you, I pray that you would uh, be there making that connection with them at this moment. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you would say, you know what, Jonathan, you talk about Jesus stretched out on a cross paying for the things I've done wrong and I have done things wrong. I want to let him pay for that. I want to have a relationship with him. How would I do that this morning? Well, because Jesus has paid for you, there's nothing left to do except for you to say yes to him, to say yes to the gift of eternal life. So I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. And if, if, you, if what I'm saying actually matches what is going on in your heart right now, you can say this silently to God, and it will be settled once and for all. Dear Jesus, I know that I've done wrong things, but I trust that you can forgive me, and I ask for your forgiveness. I know that there's nothing I can do to get to heaven on my own. So I ask you to make me God's child and to rescue me. Thank you for saving me, and it is my choice to believe in you, Jesus. Now, would you look this way? 
If you're in this room and you prayed that prayer, uh, we have a gift for you we want to give you just to get you started on your new relationship with God. So if you take that talk to us card that you received, fill out the information, check the box that says I prayed to receive Christ, you can take that out to guest services and uh, they have a, a free gift they want to give you. Thank you so much for being here next week is week four of Lost in Love.